What a task it is to stand up before the people of God and dare to preach after they have worshipped. I am um, I am amazed. I'm humbled and even challenged to know that I would dare to have something to say after God has delighted to inhabit the praises of his people. I do pray this, this morning that the words of our mouths and even the meditations of our heart would continue to be acceptable in the sight of our God because I am convinced that he is pleased with the singing of his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for this awesome time. Overwhelmed as I am in heart and mind, the tax that is before me, having participated, Lord, in the singing of your praises. Lord, if you so delight in to inhabit the praises of your people, We pray that you would too now inhabit your word. That we might continue to be changed. We might continue to be challenged. That we might continue to be conformed to the image that is Christ your son. Come now by your spirit. Fill us. Empower us. Convict us and comfort us as only you can, according to the glorious grace of the gospel that we see and behold in the face of Jesus Christ, who is your son, who is our Savior. It is in his wonderful and precious and holy name that we do pray this morning. Let the church say, Amen. Amen. Well, we are making our way through Judges. We've come to Judges 17. We just finished with the life of Samson. And now we are getting into what could be referred as the third and the final section of the book of Judges. And as we come to these last few chapters of Judges, if you have read on ahead, and I hope you have spent some time reading the book of Judges, then you know that going forward, there is nothing but a sordid mess that is happening in the nation of Israel at this time. And as I am reading through these last few chapters of Judges, what comes to mind is Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Well, we read there the most encouraging words that God is able to turn all things for good, for his glory, for the good of his people. And as I am reminded of that, I look at these last few chapters of Judges and it strains my understanding of that passage. It stretches my understanding of that passage, not so much of being reminded of the encouragement that comes from Romans 8 and 28, but to be challenged to wonder, can God really bring something good out of the last few chapters of Judges? I mean, as we'll we'll see today and going forward, things have really degenerated. 
Samson was the last of the judges that are listed in the book of Judges, and arguably he was the worst. He was the worst because none before Samson had as much potential. None before Samson had as many gifts. And none before Samson accomplished so little. Unfortunately, the worldliness did not end with Samson. It only got worse. From now on, as we go through the book of Judges, there will be no crying out to the Lord. As we saw the pattern in the Judges before, that whenever they would get, find themselves under the judgment of God, they would cry out to God in repentance, and God would hear the pleas of his people and send a judge to deliver them from their enemies. No more. No more crying out to the Lord. No more pleading with God for relief from oppression. It is as if God removes his hand of restraining grace from the nation and gives the nation a glimpse as it was as to what life would be like if God pulled himself away. And we would see we go forward in these last few chapters that it is not a pretty picture. In the previous chapters of Judges, we would, we would see that God would judge his people whenever they would become disobedient, whenever they would become idolaters. He would judge his people by sending upon them a foreign sinful nation to oppress them. The Midianites the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. And they would come as the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. And however long that oppression would come, sooner or later, the people would cry out to God in repentance and God would send them a deliverer. And this deliverer would lead them out from the the oppression. But from now on, God doesn't send a foreign nation to punish them. All God does is, in a sense, removes his hand of restraining love and mercy. And rather than a foreign enemy, God leaves Israel to herself. And in there, Israel discovers... That the worst enemy that she has is not the enemy from outside of her borders, but her worst enemy is her own heart. What we'll see in these last few chapters is far worse than anything that the Midianites or the Philistines ever did to Israel. And Israel does it. To herself.
in chapter 17, what we see manifested is what I want to refer to this morning as the idolatry of self. The idolatry of self. And the first manifestation of God's judgment upon Israel is that her sin of the idolatry is on full display And this idolatry is nothing more than the idolatry of self. God leaves Israel to herself. When you begin chapter 17, it's apparent that Israel is still a most religious people. For the whole chapters, whole chapter 17, uh, all of 17 is really about worship. It's about religion. It's a story of a man, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah could have been from the Bible Belt. He could have been even from Atlanta. For Micah has an idea of what it is to worship. He has a sense, a consciousness of God. He has a desire for worship. If you were to speak to him. And say, Micah, we are gathering over here a church for the people to come together. Micah would tell you, yeah, I'm hip with all that, but I got my own thing going on. I don't need to go to church. I'm establishing worship in my own house. He's not too interested in churches per se. To tell you that they're full of hypocrites. He's got his own religion. It's called the religion of doing what is right in his own eyes. He's excited about it. I'm convinced that most of us, if not all of us, are quite familiar with this religion. We've been there too familiar if we are honest. And I like to call it again, this idolatry of self. It is the religion into which we are all born. It is the religion in which, apart from the grace of God, we would all die. We all know this religion far too well. It's a religion that has many prophets and many teachers. It's a religion that sets up Many gods, many images, many carved and precious images. But ultimately it boils down to the worship of self. It is an idolatry that has self at the center. John Calvin said that every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. We are our hearts, our idol factories. And there is no greater or insidious idol than the idol of self. Samuel Rutherford said, Verily we know not what an evil it is to indulge ourselves and to make an idol of our own will. How evil it is. How, in, how, how industriously evil it is for us human beings to make an idol of ourselves. And yet this is the religion unto, into which we are all born. 
the worship of ourselves. This is indeed the condition of all of us apart from the grace of God. Should God, should God even this morning remove the light of his mercy and grace from us, from anyone in here, don't think for a moment that you would stop worshiping. You would. You would go on worshiping. The only thing is, you would no longer worship God, but you would worship what is right in your own eyes. And ultimately, you'd begin to worship yourself. The only thing that stands, the only thing that hinders us, that stands in our way from falling back into this worship, this idolatry of self is the restraining mercy and grace of God. That's it. That's it. Unfortunately, this is the terrible and unfortunate state of Israel as we come to chapter 17. Samson, you know, set the stage for this idolatrous way of life. You remember Samson back in chapter 14 when we were first introduced to Samson and Samson goes out and he sees this Philistine woman and he wants to marry her. So he says to his father, notice what he says to his father in verse three of chapter 14. He says, get her for me. Because she is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. Never mind what you think about it, Father. Never mind your thoughts on the matter, Mother. Never mind what God says concerning marriage. I say she is right in my eyes. He sets the stage. So that when we come to Micah and going forward, the refrain that we will hear over and over and over again is that there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone, not just Samson, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What was right in their own eyes. And Samson Began, he set the stage for this idolatrous way of life. And Micah just takes this religion to another level. And those who follow him will take it even further. At the core of this idolatrous way of living, at the core of the idolatry of self-beloved, is the goal, the object of manipulation. It's what we do. The more we get into the worship of ourselves, the more we begin to manipulate our circumstances. We manipulate people. We manipulate our circumstances. We even manipulate the worship for the ends of bringing about our own glory, satisfaction, and pleasure. what it means to do what is right in our own eyes is to manipulate so that we can have what we want when we want and how we want it and this is what we see with Micah he seeks to manipulate his mother 
He seeks to manipulate his worship. He wants to manipulate the priests, all for the purpose of seeking to manipulate God so that he can have it like Burger King said. He can have it his way. You see this in verses 1 through 4 where he seeks to manipulate his mother. Apparently, his mother has accumulated a nice little treasure chest. She has saved up quite a bit of money, some, a huge collection of silver. But apparently, someone has stolen her money. Someone has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from her. And having found out that some squawk scoundrel has come in here and, 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 and stolen this from her, she pronounces a curse upon them. Cursed be the one who has stolen my silver. Micah, a grown man with a family of his own, hears the curse of his mother and he is afraid. Afraid not of God, get you. He's afraid of the curse of his mother. And so he comes to his mother and he says, I am the one who has taken the silver. And the first thing to understand there is that this is not a repentance. He is not repenting. He is not remorseful. He is only afraid ultimately of getting caught and the curse that will be upon him for getting caught. So then rather than waiting for the potential curse that may fall, he manipulates the situation. Let me go in here and cozy up to moms. Surely, surely she will be gracious to me. And lo and behold, and lo and behold, his mom exonerates him. But she doesn't only exonerate him, but she makes for him carved images. She sets aside 200 of that silver and makes for him carved images and metal images in honor of him for worship. And thus, I'm convinced that Micah ultimately gets what he wanted Anyway, and that is more additions to his collection of household gods. Probably stole the silver anyway for the purpose of building up his collection of household God, building up his shrine, building up his house of gods. His mother gladly obliged gives him what he probably wanted in the first place. And so we see in verses 1 through 4 that he manipulates his mom. But then in 5 through 6, he seeks to manipulate worship. For he has this, this shrine, this house of gods in his house. You know, if you were to go over to Micah's house, if you have to spend time with Micah, Micah would appear to you to be a most religious person. He'd have all the trappings of religion. 
The Bible says that he has an ephod, much like Gideon did in chapter 8 and, and 27. He had an ephod, that religious garment that was to be worn by the priest. That would signify the place and the time in which God's people would worship. Micah had his own ephod in his house. But not only did he have an ephod, but he had expensive and fancy images and carved metal images in his house. Despite what the Bible says, despite what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 15, prohibiting these carved images... Micah has in his house seeking to worship the one true living God, not only an ephod, but he has these carved images. Beautiful, silver, expensive, wooden images. If you would have gone over to Micah's house, surely he would have sung the songs of Israel. Surely. He would have prayed the prayers of the fathers. For Micah knew the Lord. He knew who the Lord was. This was not about seeking to worship a false God. He knew who the Lord was. He knew who Jehovah was. We know this because of what his mother says in verse 2. Blessed be my son by Jehovah. By the Lord, by Yahweh. And again in verse 3, I will dedicate the silver to the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Look at Micah's name. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. It's what his name means. Who is like Jehovah? His name means that Jehovah is incomparable. His name means that Jehovah is unique. His name means that the Lord is Lord and he is the only Lord. His name means, as Moses said in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 10, there is no one like the Lord our God. I don't know what else Donnie McClurkin was talking about, but I think he did get it right when he says, there is no God like Jehovah. There is no God like Jehovah. When you said Micah's name, that's what you were saying. There is no God like Jehovah. Here is a very important and sobering truth for us to understand this morning. That idolatry is not just about worshiping false gods. It is also and even more dangerously about seeking to worship the right God a false way. Or in other words, worshiping God. By doing what is right in our own eyes. Micah, Micah did what was right. Micah did what was right, but not according to God, but according to Micah. Sounds familiar? Hitting close to home? 
Bible says in Proverbs 22, 21 and 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. It says in 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Do you know it is possible to worship the right God the wrong way and therefore not worship God at all? To worship him in vain? You can come to the right place but not bring the right heart. You can sing the right songs and recite the right confession, say the right prayers, but your heart not be in the right place. It is possible, beloved, to be like the Pharisees who on the outside had all the trappings of religion, who on the outside looked like they were the most religious of religious people walking around, who on the outside gave the impression that they knew the Lord God, but who Jesus says on the inside were full of dead men's bones. Dead. It is possible, beloved, to honor God as Jesus says. In Matthew 15 and verse 8, to honor God with our lips, but our hearts be far from him. It is possible to be sincere and to be sincerely wrong. And therefore, it is possible to worship the Lord your God in vain. What a sobering thought. And here was Micah. Developing a whole system of worship. Of doing what was right in his own eyes. And worshiping. In vain. This is sobering to us because far too many of us do this all the time. Thinking we are doing right, but ultimately what we're doing is right. what is right in our own eyes. God tells us in his word who we are to date, but then we date whoever we want to date, doing what is right in our own eyes. God's word tells us who we should and shouldn't marry, but then we go about and marry whoever we want to marry, doing what is right in our own eyes. God's word is not silent on how we should work and the type of work we should be engaged in. God's word is not silent on how we ought to raise our children, how we ought to discipline our children. And yet, uh, instead of listening to any of these things that God has laid out in his word, we look at those things in his word and then we go out and we do what is right in our own eyes. Nothing more than the manipulation of our circumstances. Manipulation of our worship. Because we think that there is no king in the land. And we can do what is right in our own eyes. This is Micah. Not only does he seek to manipulate his mom and seek to manipulate the worship, but and he seeks to manipulate the priests. 
can see this in verses 7 through 12. But finally, Micah gets what he's been longing for all the time. He's got all the trappings. (laughs) He's got all the material goods. But he knows that he doesn't really have a priest. And so to stand in, Michael ordains his son. He's going to ordain his son to be the priest in his home. Until the Levite shows up. And when the Levite shows up, Micah seizes upon him and he makes him priest of his worship. But notice something. The Levite is glad to oblige. The Levite is glad to go along with this program. For even though Micah had ordained his son to be a priest, he knew that his son was not a true priest. And when the Levite shows up, he gets him. But how? He gets him with enticements. He gets him with enticements. Notice the package that he offers to the priest. It's almost like a free agency. There's a free agency of priests in Israel. And notice the package that that Micah offers to this young Levite. Notice the package that he gives him. He offers him cash. Ten pieces of silver a year. He offers him clothes. A nice new suit. And he offers him the comforts of home, a place to live and something to eat. Notice the free agency is going on and Micah just outbids everyone else. And so the young Levite decides that he's going to take his talents to the hill country of Ephraim. And so he does. Well, beloved, that might work in the NBA. That gets nowhere in the kingdom of God. But what we have here is a priest for profit. What we have here, like Balaam, is a prophet for profit. And here we see again the degeneration of the nation. We see the decline of the nation is not only in the people, but most importantly and and most erroneously, we see the corruption is in the priesthood. The corruption of a people is often evident. And the corruption of the ministers and minister to them. God knows this in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 30 and 31. He says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesied falsely and the priests rule at their direction. And my people love to have it so. Love to have it so. And here we see, as Paul warned Timothy about, we have a priesthood. We have a ministry that is in love with money and in love with pleasure more than being in love with God. It's what we have. And the judgment of God is not only that he leads people to themselves, But do you know that the judgment of God is that he will send priests and he will send prophets who will tell them that all is well with their soul. 
As they go about to establish what is right in their own eyes, they will have priests, they will have prophets, they will have ministers, they will have pastors who will tell them all is well. These are they who propose that godliness, as Paul says to Timothy and 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5. That godliness is a means of gain. Oh, beloved. They're all over. This morning they're meeting in huge dome facilities. In huge squalling campuses with multi-site facilities. They're beaming their broadcast all over the airways this morning. Prominent, flashy, expensive, impressive, false prophets and prophetesses, priests and priestesses. Creating in people a desire to be rich, inflaming a love for money, and fanning the fire that is the idolatry of self. And I don't want to just pick on them this morning. But I do want to warn us all that we too easily and too frequently ourselves fall into that same idolatry. Whenever we do what is right in our own eyes. So Micah manipulates his mom. He seeks to manipulate worship and to manipulate the priest. For what end? All, all so that he might manipulate God. Here's the end of it all. Here's the end of it all. The false priests and the false prophets, the purveyors of false teaching, Whether they admit it or not, what they are doing is they are teaching a teaching that seeks to twist God's arm and tell God, God, if I believe or give in a certain way at a certain time, then you must have favor on me. You must. This is what Micah does. Notice what he says. Verse 13. Ah, I got it now. I've done it all. I've got my ephod. I've got my images. I've got my worship established. And now I got a Levite priest. God must prosper me. God must speak favor over me. I must be the head and not the tail. This must be my day. My miracle must come now. My seed must blossom now. 
My thousandfold must come now. Beloved, Micah is seeking the favor of God. There's nothing wrong with that. Isn't that what we all are seeking? We're all seeking the favor of God. Micah is seeking the joy of God. Micah is seeking the pleasure of God. John Piper reminds us men every Tuesday morning, does he, that that is what we ought to be seeking. Listen, Micah is looking for pleasure in all the wrong places. Micah is looking for favor in all the wrong places. He's looking for joy in all the wrong places. Places. What Micah fails to realize is that the blessing and the favor of God is not upon us because of us, of what we do or what we have, but the blessing and the favor of God is upon us despite us of what we do and what we have. So Micah believes that God would be pleased with what he had done. And he thought himself righteous because of what he had accomplished. And the Bible reminds us that's not that God is not impressed. God is not impressed with Micah. He's not impressed with Micah seeking to establish a righteousness on his own, not realizing, as the prophet Isaiah says, that all of his righteousness is but filthy, soiled, dirty rags. Why? Because Paul reminds us. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, that there is a righteousness that has been revealed from God apart from the law and the prophets, apart from your organized religion. There is a righteousness that is of God through faith In Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God delights to justify them by grace. Which is the gift of God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. There it is, beloved. There is only one way. There is only one way, and it is doing not what is right in our own eyes, but doing what is right in the eyes of God. And the eyes of God, the only right religion, the only right worship is faith in Christ. The only righteousness by which God is pleased to have favor on you and me is that we are in Christ. There is only one prosperity doctrine. It is prospering in faith in Christ 
Jesus. But alas, we are all too quick to attend to this religion of self. We do it. If we're honest this morning, we look around and there's no need to point the fingers outside of this facility. We all too easily fall back into the religion in which we were born. And how, 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 how do we remedy that? What is the remedy for this idolatry? How do we keep ourselves from this idolatry of self? Well, the first thing you do, beloved, is that you admit that it's not easy. You admit that you have no confidence in yourself. You admit that your desire to worship a true and living God is always warring with your desire to worship yourself. Admit that the battle is raging at all times and you're tempted at every step of the way to do what is right in your own eyes. Having admitted that, then you admit that every day you stand in dire need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day you stand in dire need of being reminded that God's pleasure and favor upon you comes not by what you do, but by who Christ is. Every day you remind yourself that I stand condemned in my sins, but I stand accepted in Jesus Christ. Every day you remind yourself that I need no satisfaction out of the things of the world because I have been satisfied in Christ Jesus. You admit that it's not easy. But then you admit every day that you need Jesus. And then you don't forsake the fellowship of the believers. How crucial, how crucial this is. We need the communion of the saints. We need others coming around us and reminding us that it is not right just to do what is right in your own eyes. You're left to yourself over any period of time. And believe me, beloved, you will begin to do what is right in your own eyes. That's why you must not only admit that it's not easy and remind yourself of the gospel, but you need to be in the fellowship and the company of believers who remind you of the same thing. The only thing, the only thing that keeps me from doing what is right in my own eyes is maintaining a constant communion and fellowship with those who are seeking to keep themselves from doing the same. It's right, a writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the coming together, the fellowship of 
believers. And especially now as the days grow more and more evil. Why? Because you'll be tempted to do what is right in your own eyes. You admit that it's not easy. You admit your need for the gospel every day. You don't forsake the fellowship and the communion of saints because you know that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There is your victory. Then, too, you come to the communion table. And you come humbly, but you come boldly. You come with your head bowed. You come with your heart down, but you come with your hands out. You come prayerfully. You come to the Lord's table. You come to the Lord's table and there you are reminded there that self has been crucified. You reminded there that at that table, there is no room for the idol of self. You come to the table of our God and be reminded that it is not about me, but it is about him who has paid it all. You come to the Lord's table and there, You see, and there you taste true worship of God. It's there at the Lord's table that you are reminded that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Satan tempted him to do what was right in his own eyes. Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. There it is. There it is. There is how you destroy the idol of self. You say over and over again, not my will, God. Not my will, Lord. Yours be done. It is the prayer of of faith that says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. Because I have surrendered all. That's the prayer. That's where the worship truly takes place. That's when we cease to do what is right in our own eyes. When we say, Christ, I surrender all. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Here, once again, is a glorious opportunity to begin to be reminded that you too can surrender all. The Lord is here this morning. He's going to minister His grace and His mercy. 
He is here this morning reminding you that he has not left you to yourself. And the way to joy and peace and contentment in Christ is not doing what is right in your own eyes. But coming to him and saying, Lord, I surrender all. Let us pray that prayer this morning. Let us be reminded, not your will, God, not my will, God, but yours be done. Let us pray. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. You are the potter, and we are the clay. Have your own way. Have your own way. Father, would you mold us this this morning? Search our hearts and find in there all those elements of the idolatry of self. Shake us. Shake us and remind us once again. Our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul to you. You alone. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. Father, we do pray that we would surrender all. Come now by your spirit. Move upon us. There's any heart in here, Lord, that hasn't been broken over their sins, that hasn't come to you by faith in the confession of their sins and the trust of Christ Jesus alone. Pray that you would break them now. Grant unto them faith. faith. Grant unto them a joy that's everlasting. Grant unto them assurance that they are yours and you are theirs forever. Have your own way, Lord. Indeed, we do pray that we would surrender all. In Jesus' name, amen.